Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. Um, well, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible from the back. We're going to be in the book of Revelation this morning. Um, very long passage again, so make sure you've got something to follow along this morning. I've been going through uh, the last book of the New Testament. That is the book of Revelation. It was written by a man named John, either the Apostle John who wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or another John who was an elder or an apostle in the early church. Um, it was written to 1st century Christians, primarily concerned with encouraging them while they underwent intense suffering and persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Uh, I've mentioned this every week, that one of the keys to reading Revelation is to read it according to its genre. That's the key to reading just about any book of the Bible, is to understand what genre you find it in. Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature, which is different than every other book of the Bible, except there's parts in like the book of Daniel that are apocalyptic. Um, apocalyptic literature in, in that kind of literature, matters of the future are presented in these visions and symbols and numbers and all kinds of things that aren't necessarily meant to be taken literally, but all signify something. It draws heavily on Old Testament pictures and Old Testament uh, events to kind of paint a picture of what's happening in the spiritual realm, what will happen in the future. Um, I love putting this picture up here as an example. This is, if you read literally in John chapter in Revelation chapter 1, this is the vision that John sees of Jesus. He sees this vision of Jesus with eyes like blazing fire and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and these stars in his right hand. And all of it is meant to signify things. This is not, I believe, how we're going to see Jesus on that day when we're in heaven coming in to give him a side hug so that we don't get a sword in our mouth coming from his mouth. Okay, That's not how we're going to see Jesus, but it signifies that he is the judge. Says, I saw a sword coming out of his mouth. That's a way of saying Jesus is the judge. I saw blazing eyes like fires, holiness. I saw the stars in his hand. The stars represent the churches. It's a way of describing things in a way that hopefully will stick and burn people's memories. It's very, very symbolic. So um, we're going to be looking at Revelation 15.5 to 18.24 this morning. I've been going through longer passages. As you'll notice during Revelation, I don't want to be going over the same themes for like three months uh, it's, it's just good to sometimes take these large chunks. So please make sure you have something to follow along because it's a long passage this morning. Um, I've been also, as you hopefully have noticed, trying to focus on the main points of the passage, right? I'm trying not to get bogged down in, in speculation about like what do things represent and wh- what, what will the end times be like? There's a place for that. That's not this place. That's not what I'm trying to do this morning. I'm much more concerned with what is this, what's the significance for you today? What's the significance for us today? as the people of God. So um, the main point, I'm just going to tell you what I think the main point of this passage is before we read this morning. I don't always do that, but I think as you read it, it'll help you to kind of frame what you're reading. I think the main point of is this, of his message is this, come out of Babylon, and we're going to have to explain what Babylon represents. Come out of Babylon, for her destruction is coming, and all who belong to her will be destroyed along with her. You kind of summarize what this passage seems to be saying, it's this. And so as we read this long passage, just keep that in mind. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read Revelation 15, 5 to 18, 24. We'll take a long breath before we begin this passage. Here we go. After this, I looked and in heaven, the temple, that is the, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and they wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels Seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, that they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth, so tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. It's calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is 
the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be called chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake, will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. 
Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who've been killed on the earth. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this means. Open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to see and understand what this has to do with our lives today, Lord, so that we might know you better. We pray you pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just in time for Halloween, huh? Wow, that is a passage of serious, serious judgment. So let's try to understand what this passage means and what it means for us today. And there's four main points I want to share from this passage. Remember once again what I said. I think the, the best way of summarizing this passage is this. Come out of Babylon, whatever Babylon means, which we'll get into. Come out of Babylon for her destruction is coming, and all who belong to her will be destroyed along with her. So the four main messages from this passage, the first I think is pretty obvious, that God will judge all who oppose him and his people. All those who are opposed to him and his people on that final day will experience judgment. This section begins with a very serious judgment. It's in contrast to, in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, there was a trumpet, a, a, a trumpet judgment trumpet judgment where it said a third of the earth was affected. And it's kind of this way of saying that there's judgment coming, but there's an opportunity for repent to repent because it's only hitting about a third of the earth. But now it's saying basically this is happening to all of the wicked. All of those who have been oppressing God's people, all those who are opposed to God are going to be judged for their wickedness. No more repentance. His wrath is poured out on all the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. It's a way of saying all those who belong to the beast. In those days, slaves were marked with the mark of their owner, who they belong to. And so it's a way, I believe, of uh, him saying that those who have the mark of the beast, those who have his name on their forehead, belong to the devil, belong to the enemy. As opposed to those who have the, uh, the word of God on their forehead and belong to him, the name of God. Revelation 15 to 16 is all kinds of judgment, but... It's not literally what's going to happen, in my opinion. It's not that literally the moon is going to turn to blood, that, you know, hail, all of that. It's a way of describing creation coming undone, the judgment of God. It's drawing on, if you've noticed, there was a lot of parallels with the Exodus plagues. It's drawing on the story of the Exodus. You see blood, the sea becoming blood. You see sores breaking out of people. You see darkness. You see frogs even. You see hail. In the Exodus story, remember, God's people were being oppressed, enslaved, by Egypt and by Pharaoh. And God sent Moses and Aaron to say, let my people go that they might go out and worship me. And they stood in the way, Egypt. And so God brought plague after plague, but they would not repent until finally the 10th plague, they let them go. They could go out and worship. In the same way, it seems, what's going on here is the same kind of imagery here. That the people of God are being oppressed and enslaved by the Roman Empire. And God is sending warning, let my people go that they might worship me. They're standing in the way, continuing to oppress the people of God, continuing to oppose God. And God sends judgment and plague and plague after plague until finally they're destroyed and the people of God can come out to worship the Lord. We've already touched on the aspect of God's wrath and judgment throughout this series. You can go back and look at some of the, listen to the, some of the previous sermons. But I just want to, again, bring up and highlight a little bit of this because it's an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people to think about God having wrath as a part of his character. In the Bible, his divine wrath refers to his displeasure, his holy displeasure with sin, his righteous indignation towards sin and towards sinners. That he is so holy that he's repulsed by evil. He cannot stand in the presence of evil. He loves so intensely 
that he hates everything that is opposed to those that he loves. He's righteous and holy in every way, so he must judge all that is not holy and righteous. Let me just share a few passages. This is from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. Strong words. That God is a holy God, a righteous God. And this is part of his character. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. That's a pretty clear passage. I would encourage you to take this to heart. If you do not know where you stand with God, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, I would encourage you to take this to heart, to consider this this morning. It's a pretty clear passage about those who do not know God, who don't obey the gospel of Jesus. In the Gospels, we read this, John three thirty six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Again, I'm trying to speak this clearly. Are we all hearing this? I'm trying to speak these clearly. Not because it's comfortable to hear, but because this is the testimony of the Bible, that God is holy and that we are all Sinners who've rebelled against God. And as such, our, his wrath is like hovering over us unless we take refuge in Jesus, unless we put our faith in him, the one who came and died for our sins. Not pleasant to think about, but his love, his wrath, it's, it's part of the same thing. If you love someone, you hate that which opposes what you love. This is how one author Rebecca Pippert put it. She said, think how we feel when we, see, when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God intensely loves us, and so he intensely hates Sin, the cancer that is eating us from the inside, that's destroying the people he loves, the world that he loves. He wouldn't be worthy of worship if he just said, ah, it's no big deal. Just let them go in their own way. No, he loves us too much to not deal with sin. It's a great quote that and for those who struggle still with the idea of a God who judges, who has a final judgment, there's a great quote from this man whose name I cannot pronounce. We'll call him Chuck. He was a Nobel Prize winning poet. He wrote a poem called The Discreet Charms of Nihilism, where he was responding to Karl Marx's comment that religion was the opiate of the masses. You ever heard that? Religion is the opiate of the people because it promises, oh, don't worry, you don't have to fight about things against things here because you'll just be rewarded in the afterlife. He said this, the true opium of the people is the belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, and murders are not going to be judged. That's the true opium, just saying, hey, I can do whatever I want because there's no God in the end. It's not going to matter. I can live however I want. There's no accountability. There's no 
day of reckoning. There's no judgment. That's, he says, the true opium of the people. The reality is that there is a judgment day, that we will stand before God one day. And please take to heart this morning, whether or not you know him, whether or not you have put your trust in Jesus for his life, death, and resurrection for your sins. The second thing we learn from this passage is that Babylon, the kingdom of this world, is a prostitute trying to seduce you away from your true lover, the Lord. Reading in in chapter 17, he sees a vision of, it says, this prostitute sitting on the waters. Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes, the abominations of the earth. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? That this picture he's giving of the kingdom of the world is like this prostitute. Now, again, I want to remind you that throughout Revelation, John uses all kinds of Old Testament imagery and language, not in a literal way, but as what's called typology. Ever heard that phrase, typology? Things are a type of something. It's like, it's, he uses, for instance, he talks about, you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. It's not actually Jezebel. It's the spirit of Jezebel from Old Testament Jezebel. Another church, he says, you tolerate the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak. Again, not literally, he's referring to an Old Testament passage. What's happening to you is like a type of Jezebel, a type of Balaam. It's, it's, it's in the spirit of what happened in the Old Testament. The same thing here, here with Babylon. Babylon was an Old Testament country that really wasn't a factor in the first century of the people he was writing to. But basically, every kingdom of the world that is like Babylon, seducing the people of God away from the worship of God, is a type of Babylon. That makes sense? doesn't matter what it is. All the way back in Genesis, you might remember, there was people in Genesis 11 trying to build a tower called the Tower of Babel. I can... And they said this, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That's the spirit of Babel right there. The self-centered, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We don't need a God. We will live for ourselves. And Babylon becomes this country that oppresses and takes Israel into captivity. And now Rome, if you read 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to Rome as Babylon. Because Not because it's literally Babylon, because it's a type of Babylon, a country, a kingdom that's oppressing the people of God, seducing them away from the worship of God through their amusements and entertainment, even having the saints fed to the lions. It's a type of Babylon. And you can go throughout the history of the world and look at the kingdoms of this world, the nations of the world, the countries that are trying to oppress the people of God that try to oppose God as a type of Babylon. And then probably, yes, in the end times, there will probably be an even greater type of Babylon that John is seeing here in the vision. But he sees this Babylon as this prostitute. And I love this quote from uh, Eugene Peterson's commentary. He quotes Flannery O'Connor, who was an author, and says this. I love this part I put in yellow there. Flannery O'Connor, in answer to a question about why she created such bizarre characters in her stories, replied, that for the near blind, you have to draw very large, simple caricatures. Let me stop there before I continue. Don't you love that? That's a great way of putting it. That is why you have these visions where it's not just there's Babylon, but it's like Babylon, the whore on the water, you know? Like for the near blind, you have to draw very large, simple caricatures. It's a way of just blasting us with that message that this is the kingdom of this world. It's not 
tame. It is a prostitute trying to seduce you away from worship of God. So he continues to say this. The great whore, the great prostitute, Babylon, is one of these large, simple caricatures. It is an image that can bring to never again to be forgotten awareness, the powerfully seductive presence of those who would obstruct or subvert our worship of the slain and risen lamb. Okay, he says, so this vision he sees of Babylon as this prostitute on the waters, he says it's meant to be this image that you would never forget, that this is the way the kingdom of the world is, trying to seduce you away from the worship of God. Whoredom is sex connected with money. The coupling is sexual. The relationship is commercial. The promise of success, ecstasy, and meaning that we can get for a price is whore worship. It is the diabolical inversion of you are bought with a price to I can get it for you wholesale. Stands in contrast to the virgin bride for whom sex is a life commitment offering to her husband. It's a pretty deep thing that he's saying here. It's going to take you a while to probably like process, but he's trying to say that this, it's a very intentional image he's putting here of the kingdom of the world as this prostitute, as this whore. It's the opposite, he says, of the image that's going to come up as the bride of Christ, that we are this bride of Christ offering ourselves to him instead of trying to find in this world the success, ecstasy, and meaning that we're looking for at the cost of what this world asks from us. Continues to say, bride worship is always at an immediate disadvantage in competition with whore worship, for whore worship is indulgent and lusty getting, while bride worship is sacrificed and faithful giving. It's an amazing way of, of putting it. That's why you see these pictures in Revelation that are so over the top. It's meant to burn into your imagination. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to burn into your imagination. This is what the world is like. This is what the Lord is like. So Babylon is that system of godlessness throughout all generations, throughout all nations of this world that tries to seduce people, seduce the people of God away from him away from worship, to find their pleasure in this world. It's driven by self-interest. Let us make a name for ourselves. You see it everywhere. You see CEOs oppressing workers to fatten their own pockets. Everywhere you see babies, unborn babies, being killed because it's not convenient. Anywhere you see genocidal dictators killing others to promote their own interests. Anywhere you see that kind of thing, you see the spirit of Babylon seducing the people of God away, the self-interest, defining their pleasure in the things of this world. Rome is a type of Babylon. C.J. Mahaney put it this way. He said, today the greatest challenge facing evangelical Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Anyone Recognize this? That's the challenge. Yes, we don't necessarily have the persecution in America that they had back in first century Roman Empire. But it doesn't mean there isn't the seduction going on. To play by the rules of this world, to live for the things of this world, to walk away from God. First John 2.16 For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Are you aware that this is happening? Do you see around you how the world is trying to seduce you? Commercially, sexually, advertising, all kinds of 
ways that it tries to draw you and make you over into its own image, stamp you with the mark of the beast, with the mark of the culture, saying this one belongs to us, living for us, living for the American dream of the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of the things of this world. Do you see what's going on? Are you aware of this kind of seduction happening around you? C.S. Lewis, because I have to quote him in every sermon. He said this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. This is what's happening. We're being seduced by the offerings of this world that can never, ever satisfy us when the Lord is here offering us all that our hearts have desired forever and ever. And we say, no thanks, we don't need the holiday. We're just going to be content in the slums making mud pies. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy you. You understand that? Nothing in this world can ever satisfy you. As much as they try to sell you on it, as much as the advertisers try to sell you and Make you over to their image. Nothing can satisfy you. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. Whoever loves money never has money enough. You want to say amen to that? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Amen to that too. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more we live for the things of this world, we'll never have enough. Continue to be looking for more and more to satisfy us because it can't satisfy us. I can't say this man's name either, so I'll call him Jay. That greed is a fat demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed it is never enough. You know, I was listening. I started listening to a podcast. I enjoyed listening to podcasts, and one I started listening to was called The Happiness Lab. Uh, maybe you heard about this this professor at Yale who did this course on happiness and the science of happiness. And one of them was talking about, you know, was looking at how miserable people who win the lottery are. Maybe you've heard that, right? Right? How many people are seduced by the by by the promise of, oh, if I could just win the lottery, all my troubles would go away. And then they go and they actually interview the lottery winners and find how miserable they are. And you can, you know, you can listen if you want to find out why, but it just, it's just another example. And I love it because the science is all backing up what the Bible says, you know, and again, episode after episode is backs up what the Bible says. You try to find your satisfaction and your, your joy and your pleasure in the things of this world and you will be sorely disappointed. You run after the things of this world and they will let you down. Augustine said, if you remember, he, he had a book called The City of God, that the city of God and the city of man dwell side by side. Whether you're in Rome, whether in the U.S., whether you're wherever, in Israel, wherever you are, there's the city of God and the city of man. Those who live for God, those who live for this world. Babylon is that city of man trying to seduce you away from God, promise you things that it cannot deliver. And John is saying, don't be seduced by the prostitute sitting on those waters. Don't be seduced. John Piper put it this way, do not be seduced by the world, but give yourself as a virgin bride to your love. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. And don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. 
probably could have said that more like John Piper, but I hope it's clear. He paints this stark picture because we are near blind, as Flannery O'Connor says. We don't get it. We don't see what's going on around us. And so John sees this vision that paints this picture of the city of man, Babylon, as this prostitute on the waters, seducing the people of God, drunk on the blood of the saints. And so the third thing is close to that, then come out of Babylon and find your satisfaction in the Lord. In chapter 18, verse verse 4 to 5, it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her, come out of the city of man, come out of Babylon, do not be seduced anymore, but be satisfied by the Lord. It goes on to say how all those who found their life in Babylon are weeping. It says the kings of the earth are weeping. The, the merchants of the sea are weeping. All those who lived by the city of man, finding their all there, are weeping and mourning as Babylon is destroyed. But then it says, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has judged her for the way she has treated you. Come out from her and find your satisfaction in the Lord. Do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. First Timothy 6, 6 through 12. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And Luke 12, 29 to 34, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not be seduced by all this world is promising you, but come out of it and be satisfied with the Lord. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. To quote John Piper again, he puts it this way. He says, corporate worship at Bethlehem is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of this world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. 
Corporate worship at Bethlehem is the blatant public savoring of God in the midst of a very seductive Babylonian culture. Worship is the flagrant open enjoyment of God as the fountain of life. And therefore, it is a public declaration that God is more to be desired than all the pleasures of Babylon. Keep this in mind as you watch TV and listen to the advertisements coming your way. Keep this in mind as you listen to the messages that are coming your way. How everyone is just trying to seduce you away from God. To Babylonian ways that cannot satisfy, that will in the end destroy you. Come out of her and belong, give yourself to the Lord who can satisfy you. The last thing I want to say from this passage is this. We can resist the seduction of the world when we see the attractiveness of the love of Christ. I mean, it's one thing to say, come out of her, but it's another thing to say, to what? What are we coming out to? It's a great quote by Thomas Chalmers. He says, no one changes a habit just by trying. Oh, I shouldn't be like that. The only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. It's a great phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. By finding something that is better than what this world has to offer, by finding something that satisfies more than anything in this world. As you see the beauty of Jesus, as you see the love of Jesus, the attractiveness of his love and grace, the things of this world begin to fade a little bit. The attractiveness begins to fade. You begin to see through them and see that's a lie. That is a thief trying to steal, kill, and destroy. Because I've found the one who loves me. You know, Jesus, before he went to the cross, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. As he came there, he began to sweat blood because he knew it was about to happen. And he said, Father, if there is any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but yours be done. And that imagery of the cup showed up a lot in this Revelation passage, if you didn't notice. The cup signifies the wrath of God. And in the Revelation passage, it talks about drinking, you know, pouring out the cup of God's wrath on Babylon. But at the cross, Jesus drank the cup, took the punishment that we deserve, drank the wrath of God for us the wrath of God on human sin. He drank it down. He experienced on the cross, not just physical pain, but spiritual abandonment, forsakenness from his father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He drank that full strength so that you would never have to, so that you could have eternal life, so that you could know there's no condemnation that you could know that nothing can separate you from his love. That's the depth of his love for you. It's not just Barney in the sky saying, I love you. That is not what we're talking about here. That is not the love of God. The love of God is a costly love. It is Jesus drinking the wrath of God down at the bottom so that you could be saved, so that you could go free. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this. Oh, I guess I didn't put it up there. There it is. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified, that means declared not guilty, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This word is a feast, isn't it? I just love these passages. Just This is satisfaction for our souls. This is the truth of the love of God for you. That while we were his enemies, he died for you. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not the things of this world. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I ask this about once a year. The joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? He already had everything in heaven. The one thing that he did not have was you. Because you were separated from God. The joy set before him was having you restored to a right relationship. Having you back with God. That was the joy set before him. That was what gave him the power to endure the cross, to take the wrath of God, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To go through all of that, it was for you, out of love for you. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. When that comes into your heart and you understand at the depth of your soul what he did for you, how can anything in this world ever compare What can any advertiser offer you that you cannot find, that you haven't already found in him? What can any person in this world offer you that isn't found in him? Come out of Babylon. Come out of the kingdom of this world. Do not be seduced by all this world is offering you. But find your satisfaction and joy in Jesus, the one who gave his life for you who loved you so much that he died for you. I want to close with a quote from a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers that I try to read in the morning. And one of the quotes from this week just really resonated with me. It said this, I will not love a world that crucified him, neither cherish nor endure the sin that put him to grief. I will not love a world that crucified the one who loved me so much he gave his life for me. I will not love that world. And I will not cherish nor endure the sin that put him to grief. Amen. Let's respond and worship. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Weathersfield, Connecticut, and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship. 